Good morning, Bethel. How are we doing? Good to see you guys this morning. We are about to jump into our worship. I wanted to kind of give you a rundown of what's happening today. We have, of course, our first song to open up, and then we'll have a, a few announcements, a welcome. We have some graduates today from high school we're going to recognize. We're excited about that. And so we're going to take some time and recognize them, acknowledge them, and pray for them. And then uh, we'll head into week two. Really, it's part two of the beast uh, or the bride, and we'll get into that. And then um, we'll wrap up with some worship. And then we'll be, we'll be done for the day. About an hour we'll be here, maybe slightly more, depending on how long I talk. Mm. All right, this week I don't have extra time to, I've got to finish, okay? Um, but we're excited for you to be here. I want to introduce everybody on stage. We've got a whole crew. We've got Isaiah on the drums. We've got Price right here, Aaron. We have Emily, Carissa, uh, Andrew, and then we have Peyton over there on lead guitar. So we're excited to be together today. Yes. Let's all stand and let's worship together, all right? Wow, awesome. Great job, Peyton. Um, good morning. Everybody doing all right? I guess we can just pray and go home, right? <laughs> that was good. Um, I would like to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the second half of last week's message. I don't have time this morning to go back and go through it all, so if you missed last week, it's okay. You'll still be able to track with us, but I do encourage you to go back either on our YouTube channel, Facebook, or our podcast and actually listen to uh, last week's uh, message as a, as a good introduction to what this series is all about, okay? Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into part two of week one, all right? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for who you are. Um, God, without you, we are hopeless. And I, I think about these words that Peyton's saying. Sometimes we feel like you, <laughs> we've gone too far, like you won't accept us back home. But God, as we've seen in Scripture and, and principles in the story of the prodigal son and story of David, the story of um, almost every single character in Scripture, we see that you're always there ready to talk. You're always there ready to welcome us home. So God, I pray that tomorrow, this morning as we step into this next part of the, the message, the sermon, I, I pray that we'd be clear that this is not an indictment from you. This is not some rejection or uh, condemnation. This is more of an invitation, God, for us as a church to come back to you, to walk back to you, to, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and make a difference in our community. God, we love you. We are grateful for, for everything that you've allowed us to see, accomplish, experience this week, the grace that you've given us every day. I pray that today would be no different and your grace would overflow and we could see clearly in Scripture uh, what you've done for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to see you this morning. This week has been a wild week. I'm not sure about you guys, but um, last Sunday kind of left the, the service and, and really just kind of processing what God is doing, not only in our church, but in my personal life. And, and this idea of beast or bride is what we're walking through. Um, is the church presently, but also what's the future of the church? Because the tendency is that we can take a good thing and we can make it bad, okay? Um, who likes ice cream? All right. Um, Man, there's only half of you that like ice cream? Come on. You're either lying in church or you really don't like ice cream. I don't know. Um, okay, so I like real simple stuff. Okay, I'm a vanilla kind of guy. Anybody else vanilla? Okay, well, who about chocolate? Okay, what about just any and everything? It's just ice cream, cold, good. All right, okay. So have you ever had too much ice cream? Ooh. So it's good, and then it's too much, and then it's not good, right? It's kind of like I don't ever want to see this ice cream again. 
and then next week I'll eat it again. So, I mean, I'll be back into it eventually. But there is too much of a good thing. And even when it comes to the church and the idea of the church is that sometimes what we do, and here's the temptation, is that we have an experience, we have some moment, and then we kind of begin to think about it and say, man, that was such a great moment. How can we, how can we fabricate that again? Like, how can we come up with that same thing again? And how can we begin to direct it instead of being spirit-dependent, being led by Him? And so we end up going through the motions a lot of times, and we end up creating our own um, idea of what it is to be a church. And then what we end up looking at is like, oh, it's a monster. i got to keep feeding this thing. If I don't feed this thing, it's going to turn around and bite me, or someone's going to bite me. Someone's going to get upset. And so what we're doing today is we're actually, in this series, we're in the middle of a personal review, kind of like a self-examination. Um, we're looking at ourselves, the church. We're looking it at ourselves to evaluate whether or not we're the church that Jesus built. Because Jesus clearly gave his, his endorsement, but also clearly gave his direction for the church. And I encourage you to go back and analyze and listen and, and meditate on what we've seen so far. Um, what, I, what we need to do is if we don't like what we find, we don't like the re results of our review, if we don't like the things that we see, we need to be confident, but we also need to be brave enough to charge ahead and actually change the things that we don't like about the church. Uh, what is our plan when things need adjusting? So what do we do when we don't like the direction we're heading? What do we do when we want to shift course or pivot? We have to have actually a plan. And for the church, simply put, we will humbly ask Jesus for direction. We'll submit to him and ask him for direction. And that's really what the purpose of the series is over the next few weeks, um, except next Sunday. Don't come next Sunday, okay? It's family escape weekend. No one will be here. And you'll be like, uh, what, what happened? So if you show up to the next Sunday and you start looking around, and you're like, I think they forgot. Am I, is this the right day of the week? And you're like confused. No, we're not here. It's Family Escape Weekend. Go have fun with your family. Next Sunday, we will not be together, okay? Um, it's something that we like to do in the rhythms of our church. But just because we had a bad experience at a restaurant or bad service as a restaurant doesn't mean we've discredited all restaurants, right? We may have a bad taste in our mouth about that one, but it doesn't mean we stop eating, and a lot of times the church gets such a bad rap because someone's had a bad experience with one or two or had a bad experience with a pastor or had a bad experience with other Christians or maybe on Facebook you got to do a yelling match, like a, a all caps yelling match with someone that was a Christian. You're like, I'm out. Well, just because we've had a bad experience doesn't mean we just walk away from the church that Jesus built. 2,000 years ago, he established what we now see as the local church, but he established this organization that still for 2,000 years has making a difference, is making an impact. And we may ask ourselves, why is the church still impacting lives? And more closer to home, what are we doing in our church? Are we creating a monster or are we creating the bride of Christ? The future of the church is at stake. So we're going to explore topics not only today, but over the weeks to come, specific ones about unity or division. We're going to talk about faithfulness or unfaithfulness. We're going to talk about preparing the bride or feeding the beast. We're also going to talk about following Jesus or just consuming religious activity. Um, this is what we learned last week as a one-point recap, is the church is not a club to join, but a kingdom, or sorry, a community to become. It's a kingdom to unite. This is something far greater than anything we can actually put our words around because it is something supernatural that Jesus is doing. So when it comes to the church that Jesus started in the first century, it'd be really hard for a first century believer not only to come into modernity and experience modern stuff, 
but specifically the church, the essence of what the church is, the characteristic of the church, it'd be really hard for the church in the first century to acknowledge or even recognize this church or any church as an actual bride of Christ because it is so different. I think over the last 200 years in particular, we've gone through such a shift in what it means to be a body, to be a family, to be a congregation, to be a flock, all the words that are in Scripture. It'd be really hard um, over the last 200 years to not see all the shifts that it's taken, some good, some painful, some very beneficial, and some detrimental to the growth of our church. It's barely recognizable. So I'm wondering if we've just gotten used to the way things are. I'm kind of wondering if we've gotten used to the chaos and just said, well, that's just the way it is. That's what the church is. In many instances, we've removed ourselves as a safe haven for people that are lost or confused or seeking or asking questions Instead, we've turned it into a monster and not a place of restoration and care. So when the church is no longer about the Messiah, about Jesus, the Son of the living God, it actually turns into a beast. Jesus actually said he would build his church. We're going to see that in the coming weeks in Ephesians, um, where he built his church to become the bride of Christ for the wedding day. This is the, the thing that Jesus set out, and we're going to kind of figure out what that means and, and how we can be a part of it, but it's really interesting that he decided to take a group of misfits. You look at the disciples, the apostles, those that followed him, about 120 people that actually stuck with it beyond the resurrection, up in the upper room, and you look at this group of disconnected misfit people, and he created something that, be, that is his prized possession. And you you, 2,000 years later, actually are continuing the exact same um, model that you are his prized possession, a bunch of misfits in the same room, a bunch of disconnected, strange people that in any other circumstance or any other context really probably wouldn't get along. It is not about our preferences. It's only about Jesus. That's why we gather. It's about him. And week after week, it's an exciting thing to do as a family here at Bethel. But we do need to take a moment and pause and review and reflect and see how we're doing. In Matthew chapter 16, we started last week. I'm going to read it quickly this week, but we're going to focus on the last half of this section today. Matthew 16, verse 13. We're going to start there. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself. Who do people say that I am as Jesus? Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, the, some say John the Baptist, uh, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? That's the most important question of all time. Actually, it's the most consequential question you can ever confront or ask yourself. Who do I say that Jesus is? And it says right here, Peter replied or answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The answer that was not learned, it was not an answer that he came up with on his own. It's something that was revealed to him. Look there in verse 17. Jesus replied, You are blessed, son of Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Without going into any detail at all, this week, each of us, me included, our church, has had an opportunity to forbid or permit on earth and in turn affect the, con the consequences are eternal in heaven. We have an opportunity as a church to embrace and restore and give grace and to permit someone to walk through that process individually and all of us collectively. We're here today to support graduates. We're here today to support the, second, the next level of life for many people, but we're also here to celebrate one person, which is Jesus, 
And when we're submitted to him and, and are under him humbly, we actually have a unification process to permit and forbid. So here's some truths that we draw from Jesus' vision of the reality of the church. The first one is that the church is eternal. It cannot be destroyed. The church is eternal, and it cannot be destroyed. Now, in order to clarify, I'm not talking about Bethel Community Church. I'm talking about the church at large, the church that Jesus built. Bethel is a part of the church that Jesus built, but this church was born, and this church eventually will pass away from existence. Well, people won't even remember that it was here. That is the lifespan or the life of a church. It's a living organism that borns, is born, and then it also dies. And if you've been here for any amount of time, I'm talking like 10 years or beyond, you understand that our church has gone through different life cycles. Our church is almost unrecognizable to what, to what it was 10 years ago. That's not bad, or it's not good. It just is. And so a church is eternal. The church is eternal. It cannot be destroyed. It says right there, all powers of hell will not conquer it. This, this idea of hell is the idea of death or separation from God. It's something that the church will never experience, a separation or a death separated from Jesus, separated from God. No matter how weird or how uncomfortable it becomes, the church cannot be destroyed. Many have tried for thousands of years, and impossibly, it cannot be destroyed. Actually, when it becomes difficult, when it becomes oppressive, is when the church truly thrives. When it's difficult and society turns its back on the church, it's when the church actually takes a step forward. It can, however, lose its effectiveness when Jesus is no longer the center. And in my opinion, a church that is no longer with Jesus in the center has lost its heart and is dead. We can lose our way. And we, create, we can create something that is not the church. Here's what I want you to understand about the eternal church. We shouldn't confuse religious activity and motion with the church that Jesus built. Amens don't mean church. Hallelujah does not mean church. Songs and worship does not mean church. A message does not mean church. The church is all about Jesus, and it's only about Jesus. It can only be about Jesus for eternity. And we get to participate in our time in history into this thing we call the church. When a church is all about preservation instead of the pursuit of Jesus, it runs the risk of becoming a beast. In all reality, church and preservation mode has lost its leading of the Spirit to step out of the boat and into faith. As soon as we start to preserve and protect what we have or what we've built, then our pursuit of Jesus is ineffective. We run the risk of losing the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually showed us the way he left the protection and the preservation of paradise and actually came to this earth to pursue us. Our mission is to leave preservation to leave the preservation and security of safety, status, pol politics, systems, and power in order to pursue the lost, the last, and the least. That's what Jesus has called us to do. He's modeled it for us. And for some reason, as soon as humanity builds something, we turn and try to protect it. And Jesus never tried to do that. Here's what we see in the next part of the passage. It says the church has keys. So not only can it never be destroyed, but the church has keys. It says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
a lot of people think the, you know, you can talk and you can pull out some keys. And I thought about giving everybody a key, and then I was like, eh, that might distract of what I'm talking about because it's more characteristics, principles. It's actually a power that is unholdable. It's intangible, and yet it's super powerful that the church has an ability to open or close. Some things that Jesus didn't teach about the kings of the church, the keys of the church. You know, Jesus never tried to overthrow the government with these keys. Jesus never tried to overthrow the temple with these keys. Jesus didn't try to win any arguments with these keys. Jesus didn't condemn sinners with these keys. Jesus didn't throw away religious people with these keys. You know what Jesus did? Is he, Jesus actually opened doors with love, sacrificial love. Jesus opened doors with dialogue and conversation with people that were very far from God or people that thought they were close to God. Jesus opened the doors with grace and he opened these doors with forgiveness and he opened doors with radical generosity and radical service and radical acceptance of people that were completely alienated from society. Those are the keys that are powerful because Jesus has actually handed those keys to the church and instead of being a place that pushes out, it's a place that can draw in. The church was never meant to be a beast. It was supposed to be the hands and feet. It was supposed to be Jesus personified. It was supposed to be hope, a hospital, a restoration center, a place where burdens can be laid down. All the fake could be laying aside. A place where the truly broken humans could gather and experience abundance and the presence of the Heavenly Father. The church is a place that is visible, and yet this church is flexible. It's organized, and yet it's fluid. It's working, and yet it's free. There's things to do, and yet we're supposed to be. It's fully dependent, fully passionate, and fully, uh, full of a variety of people from ethnics, different ethnicities and backgrounds drawn together, and there's only one reason that they would draw together is Jesus. That's it. It's a place that needs to use the keys to open doors rather than shut doors. And unfortunately, with church in preservation mode goes around locking all the doors to keep people out. I didn't put this in my notes, but if you go back in Scripture, you'll see the temple, and the temple had layers going into the holiest of holy. And you had the non-Jewish people that were on the outside, and then if you decided you wanted to convert to Judaism, you can go into the courtyard, and then there's other special elect people that go into the inner area. And then there was this holy of holies that only the priest was supposed to go. And Jesus, when he came, he actually tore apart that uh, barrier between God and man. The holy of holies was open for all of humanity, for all history. And if the church goes about closing all of the doors and excluding the world from what the hope of Jesus offers, it is us using keys to close the doors, not open. The church gets into trouble. Because the church is not about, I'm sorry, the church is all about unity, not philosophy. The church is all about unity, not philosophy. Look what it says here. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Now, it's talking, he's talking to the group of disciples. He's talking to everybody. He's talking to us now, 2,000 years later, the church. Whatever you forbid in unity actually will be forbidden on, in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. It's this unifying mission to come together for one sole purpose, to make Jesus known. So the church gets into trouble sometimes because we love to be about division more than unity. 
I grew up in a Baptist church, and the, the joke was, oh, Baptists grow by division, not multiplication. True. First Baptist church, second Baptist church, fourth Baptist church. Oh, now we're community Baptist church. You know what I'm saying? It's like all the, all the different variations. It's because it's by division. I thought it was just Baptist, but no, nope, I've gone to all denominations, same thing. We love to grow by division, not by multiplication. We try to make sure that each theological point is fine-tuned to the point that we separate people into different categories based on their theological beliefs because we all have to make sure that we agree about 100% everything. Here's my question. How's that worked for you at home with your wife and your kids? All you got to do is say, hey, what do you guys want to eat for dinner? World War IV. Everybody has an opinion, and in the end, I have to make a decision, and everyone's mad, right? Well, I'm just not eating. Okay, fine. You can starve. It's fine. And that's the way the church is. You get a whole bunch of people together, and we are all different, and we see things differently and have different life experiences. And once we fine-tune theology, a, a specific doctrinal point into categories, we have all sorts of categories all over the country with all sorts of different beliefs, and we can't even get along. And we're supposed to be under the banner of Jesus. This affects our politics and our clothing styles, our personal activities, raising children, educational preferences, and church governance. All of it is up for grabs, and everyone is either wrong or more wrong. We're the only ones that are right. We pick out a scripture reference that fits our preferences and philosophy or our methodology, and we tie it to that point. See, scripture says this, so we have to do this. And it only said it once in, like, Chinese. It wasn't even in English. It was just like we interpreted it from some other language, and it didn't even work. This causes us to feed the beast and divide us into groups and separate instead of unify. So the more extreme we become, the more radical we become. So many standards that the church elevates is simply a response to culture. <laughs> it had nothing to do with what was found in Scripture. It's just a response to culture. And you can look at it in your lifetime and the, lifetime, the generation before. Here's some examples. Dress code. Suit, tie, dress, no pants, long hair, short hair, no tattoos. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's this form that if you did not fit this form, you're not welcome. And unfortunately, over time, churches have divided over that. And then now it's like, oh, come as you are. We're better than them because you can come how you want. Oh, man, that's just terrible. Because it's not about a dress code. It shouldn't be. It should never be an option. It should never be anything you think about. What about Bible versions or the correct Bible version? Oh, man, that's caused so much debate and division. When, in all reality, unless we all learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, we've got an interpretation. That's just the truth. Now, you may be upset about that, but the fact is, Scripture was inspired by God, and we have the best-kept inspiration of God for our cons 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 consumption today. What about Sunday school? Uh, you've probably, I mean, you're in Oklahoma, you've probably been to Sunday school at least once with a friend. It's simply a method that was used to educate people, that's all. What, what about small groups or community groups or Bible studies, prayer groups? Ooh, prayer groups are the best, right? I mean, gossip, I mean, prayer groups, that's what they are? I don't know. Simply a method for community, that's all it is. Good or bad, it's fine. What about discipleship? That was a buzzword for a long time, discipleship. What had happened is we ended up making a bunch of checklists. And if I went through this checklist and I could check off all the stuff that you knew that I gave you information about, ah, discipled, you're good. And what happened is we ignored daily life and daily living. 
and we made people into projects that we could actually accomplish and fix. That doesn't work. How are your kids doing? Have you made them into a checklist, and how's that working for you? Mine not so good. Sunday morning worship. Oh, thank you. Oh, look at you guys. I need to take some notes from you. <laughs> Sunday morning worship. We're gathered here right now. Is this a biblical point, or is this simply something that's the most convenient for most of us? Sunday morning has become a Western convenience, but other parts of the world don't see it like that. But for some reason, we've tied this to Sunday, and we say Sunday is the way or the day to worship. Church governance, deacons, trustees, elders, pastors, whatever you want to call it. There's a whole bunch of structures. There's a whole bunch of different methods, and it's simply a historical context that every church needs to decide what they're going to do. At Bethel, it's just organized chaos. That's all it is, a bunch of chaos. I told somebody, we're like an adolescent teenager, just a mess, a lot of hormones, a lot of activity, a lot of raging stuff that happens. I mean, we could reproduce, but we probably shouldn't. It's kind of like that. That's how we are right now. And so every church needs to figure out what God wants them to do. And we at Bethel actually understand that it's not, someone is not more spiritual based on what they wear, based on what they drink, based on what they eat, say, or do. That has nothing to do with someone's spirituality. Here at Bethel, we've actually been on the look for years that God would bring people up that have different gifts and abilities and shepherding or caring for people. And we've actually identified some people in our congregation that actually have a supernatural gift of shepherding. And little by little, as God reveals these people to us, we will bring them into a leadership of the church because we believe that a church, a flock, a congregation is led by shepherds. And um, if you guys don't know Aaron Miller, where are you at, Aaron? Are you hiding somewhere? Oh, he just left. See, he knew I was about to talk about him, so he took off. Um, Aaron is, um, over the years, we've watched his life, and <laughs> hey, there you go. Man, I didn't know you were going to come on stage. All right. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> no, it's all right. This is Aaron Miller. If you don't know him, thank you. You can leave. All right. He has, uh, he has the gift of shepherding, and if you've spent any time with him, you can see that he can I, empathize and and relate to you and your struggles. And so Aaron is one of our shepherds. So how do we keep from feeding the beast? And, and how do we keep feeding the beast? Because this is actually a temptation. This happens all the time. You know, have you ever heard, we got to keep growing. We got to keep people entertained. We got to keep people sitting. We got to hire more staff. We got to keep doing. We got to keep pressuring. We just got to keep, 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 keep. And as soon as we do that, we take our eyes off Jesus, the author and the finisher of the church. So a church united on Jesus is a church that will not be distracted by the hostility that arises with shifts, movements, and whims of preference. That's a church that is united. Here at Bethel, we try to make it all about Jesus, but guess what? We make mistakes. We forget. We get distracted. Sometimes we simply just need to repent and return to Jesus. Sometimes we, need, we don't need to see um, and blame others, but look at ourselves and say, you know what? I've made this about something else and not about Jesus. Sometimes we don't see it because we we're not even looking for it. We don't want to look intentionally and evaluate how we're doing, and today I want us to open our eyes and begin the journey to look at ourselves. How are we doing? 
St. Augustine said this, he said, it's no advantage to be near the light if your eyes are closed. There's many times that we go blindly into seasons of life, seasons of our church, seasons in our country, in our community, and we forget that Jesus is who we're supposed to look for. So today we're actually going to step into a relationship with one another with no strings attached, no checklist. We simply will be together. We'll simply be able to experience Jesus. We're going to unite under the name of Jesus and no other. We're going to strive to be one And we're going to open our eyes and see if we've hitched our faith to something else. Jesus or something else. My question, and actually next week, or not next week, don't listen to me, not next week, in two weeks, we're going to ask ourselves the question, has our church become a beast and left Jesus at the altar? We'll try to dig into scripture and get some direction that way. But to conclude today, When a church becomes about other things than Jesus, we've lost it. We've lost it. Let me pray for you this morning. God, wow, we are so grateful for you. That you would look upon us with love and your son, through obedience, would leave the protection of paradise and pursue us. God, that you would look at us with love and not rejection. In all our mess, in all our problems, you actually step into our mess. So much so that you became one of us and you pursued us. (laughs) And you didn't tell us, hey, fix all this stuff and then we can be friends. You actually touched lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, religious people, men, women, children, elderly, the dead, the blind, the outcast. You, you came and touched and became one of us. 2,000 years later, Jesus, I look at our church at large and I'm, I'm kind of wondering how we're doing. Have we taken your keys that are meant to open doors and bring people in and instead lock the doors to keep people out? Jesus, may we repent, may we return to you, may we, may we ask for forgiveness for the mistakes we've made and then boldly and bravely put our eyes on you. And, and our prayer, God, our, our striving for this generation is that you would do it again in our generation, that our kids, God, would be able to inherit the bride and go forward and change and impact the world. I, I look at our graduates today and I'm not only impressed, but I'm really excited for these that are going to pursue you and pursue the future. And each one of their prayer requests was about God showing us the way. And we're simply asking the same thing. We ask that you do it again like you did in the first century. God, we ask that you open hearts, that you open minds, that your spirit would invade every person and that we would be unified under one sole purpose, Jesus and him alone. If there's anyone here today that has is, that is never actually opened up their lives and stepped into a relationship with Jesus, I pray that today would be that day. Jesus, that your spirit would draw them in, that you would reveal yourself to them as you did to Peter, and that they could confidently say, you are the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Jesus, 
We need you. Please, Jesus, do it again.